Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Well, good morning again. For those of you who this may be your first service back, welcome home. Uh, back into the building, I guess I should say. For those of you who maybe this is your very first Sunday at all at Connect Church, I want to say a very special welcome to you and glad that you are here and I hope you feel a part of the family. Uh, We're still trying to learn what it looks like to be family like this and social distanced and all that sort of stuff. So appreciate your patience with us as we're trying to figure that out, keep people safe and want to make sure people feel secure. But we also want to make sure that we are uh, meeting together as, as we can and have opportunities to do so because we're just better together. And the Lord knows that and he called us into that face-to-face community. And so there's a lot of things that we've learned over the last few months about the importance of that. And, uh, and maybe in some ways that we have not taken advantage of that fully. But uh, our intention is to learn from these days and not just be critical and complain about them. So we finished our first week of back to school. So all of our teachers, you made it. Uh, One more week to go. uh, And uh, we'll see how we feel next week and uh, on and on. So everybody seems to be needing to be patient with each other. and, uh, And we're either learning how to do that or how to be angry at everything. Uh, So that's an interesting time for us to be talking about Jesus's very first sermon that he he spoke publicly, and that's in Matthew chapter five. So if you'll join me there, we're learning a lot uh, about what Jesus taught us, how to deal with days just like the ones that we live in. I also would just bring your attention to something very quickly. Uh, We have been asked as a church to come alongside another church in the area I won't go into a lot of details about that right now, but over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Joel has gone out to preach there, and uh, this week, Blake Jordan is there preaching. They're about to start service in just a few moments, so if you wouldn't mind, let's uh, be in prayer for that church and for our pastors as they go out there and minister uh, to, uh, to other local churches who are trying to figure this all out too. And so we love being able to have the opportunity to do that. So let's just take a moment and pray for for this message and also for the one that's gonna be going out uh, broadly. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to lift our voices and our our hearts to you in worship. And we are very grateful that the word says that you are the lifter of our head. So as we lift our hearts and we realize who you are, Lord, thank you that you continue to lift us up. And so I pray for the, the, your word this morning as it goes out, the, the, the message as it comes through you to your people. I pray that we would have ears to hear. I also pray for Blake. And I know it's difficult sometimes to, um, uh, to speak in a place that's not yours. And I pray for the folks that are there in that church. They would be warmed and uh, encouraged and uh, also motivated to, to, uh, to stay with it and to continue and to experience your presence and your power and to know what they need to do uh, in order to help people find and follow Jesus as well. And so all of this belongs to you, Lord. We give it to you and we ask your blessings on it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In Matthew chapter five, verse seven, we're gonna continue with the... Beatitudes, which 
is a good word. It's not a biblical word. It is a Latin word, actually. But it means to find the favor of God or to flourish. So for those of you who've not been able to follow along with us at home or online uh, for week to week, uh, we're learning what Jesus teaches us right out of the gate about how to have the blessing and favor of God upon your life so that you can learn how to flourish. Now, I will say this to ver- to the very beginning. When when I want to compare the Beatitudes with, with the fruit of the Spirit. So when, you talk, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we have to recognize that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, you know, self-control, these things are produced in us by the Spirit himself. They're not ours. We're not producing them. We're not learning to be more patient. We're not learning to be more, more joyful. We are actually learning how to give our life to the Spirit so the Spirit can produce that in us. Our responsibility is not to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Our responsibility is to abide in the vine, Jesus Christ. And by his going and our receiving of the Holy Spirit, we are able to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit singular, not plural. It's all of them or nothing. Now, we can create some artificial fruit in our life for a season and it eventually rotten. But the fruit of the Spirit abides always. And so uh, that's what we never want to settle for artificial fruit, right? If you ever bit into a wax apple, you'll know why. Secondly, let's compare that now to the flourishing passage of scripture, Matthew chapter five. These are not produced in us. All right. So it's very important for us to realize that as Christians, we don't just get to say yes to Jesus and then sit back and grow. We get to say yes to Jesus and then the work begins where we have to dig in and make some choices. So the, I guess the, the argument would be uh, for free will or God's sovereignty. If we give ourselves over to God's sovereignty, he will produce Christ's righteousness in us. But our free will requires this continual ongoing digging it out. So the Beatitudes and the fruit of the Spirit are not in competition with each other, but in order to manifest the proof of the Spirit alive in us, we have to do some cultivating work in our own life. For instance, it is a command for us to be poor in spirit if we want to see the kingdom of God. If we want to be comforted, we must mourn. That's on us. It's not a matter of saying, Lord, help me to mourn. We have to cultivate the attitude of mourning. We have to cultivate the attitude of humility, of meekness, We have to hunger and thirst after righteousness. These are responsibilities and obligations upon us if we ever want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, these, at least these four things are required prior to salvation because you can't experience repentance apart from these four things. We have to understand our spiritual poverty. We have to mourn and sorrow over our sin. We have to receive Christ with humility and recognize that our pride isn't good enough. And then it's the hungering and the thirsting after righteousness whereby we are not receiving our own righteousness. We are not becoming righteous. We are receiving the righteousness of Christ. And so to pursue or to hunger and thirst after righteousness is truly to hunger and thirst and seek after the person of Jesus himself. He, after all, is the righteousness of God. So that brings us to today, all right? Which is, in verse seven, blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall obtain mercy. Now, whether we realize this at first glance or not, these are not just a list of good attitudes to have. This is a progression of when you get this one, it gives birth to this one. Then it gives birth to this one and then to this one. And now we are learning to be merciful. What does it mean to be merciful? So whether we realize it at first glance, this learning to be merciful is the remedy, the cure for all bitterness. Every, in every relationship, whether it's marital, whether it's in your paternal instincts, whether it's someone you work with, this is the beatitude that deals with the root of bitterness in our life. And if you want to know where all grumbling and complaining and selfishness comes from, it's from bitterness, especially in our emotions and our mind. In Matthew chapter three, just two chapters prior, we see the context by which Jesus launches into this sermon even to begin with. So I'm gonna begin reading in verse seven of Matthew chapter three. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, now this is a day of celebration, (laughs) Jesus said, you brood of vipers. Now I don't know how he said it, I don't know his cadence, his, his uh, uh, artic. I know this, it's really hard to pretty that statement up. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff who will burn with unquenchable fire. This is unmistakable. John the Baptist had had an incredible ability to, to preach with authority and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Can you imagine? I mean, to, have, to be really speaking on your own authority because you know, they, they don't recognize uh, John's uh, prophetic gift, but to be able to start with saying you brood of vipers, no wonder his head ends up on a platter. Brood of vipers. Well, so why? Why are they snakes in the grass. Here's why. Because their idea of holiness, of a relationship with God, came from the triviality of who their daddy was. You know, they, they would flex all the time to the rest of the world. We are the children, the sons and daughters of Abraham. We are the recipients of the covenant that God gave our father in the faith. And so, are we the people of God? Of course. Look at our genealogy. And so they walked in this superficial religiosity that they boasted in, their ability to keep the law, to look good externally. 
They followed the law of external holiness and they truly thought it was enough. All right, now let's turn over to Matthew chapter 23, if, if you will. And we'll see the background of what Jesus was up against when he's ministering in Palestine. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Again, I've been preaching for 25 years. I don't know how to pretty that up. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Here's what Jesus is getting at. You can superficially look good on the outside and you can fake everybody out. But God doesn't care what's on the outside. He doesn't care about all your checked boxes. He doesn't care about all your law keeping. What God cares about is what's going on on the inside of a person. And this goes all the way back to the days of Samuel when, when that was said of David. God doesn't look on the outside. God looks on the inside. God knows that if he can change the inside of a person, the outside will take care of itself. But we live in a day of modern Christianity. I shouldn't say that because we look a lot more like the Pharisees than we do Christ where we're satisfied with checking boxes and looking good on the outside and, and we're satisfied with faking everybody out as long as they think good of us, we can point to all the things we've accomplished in our life and yet remain completely unchanged by the Spirit. This condition of poor in spirit Mourning our sin, humbly receiving our rightful identity, and then allowing Christ's righteousness to fill us back up. This condition of blessed emptiness is followed by this hunger for the fullness of righteousness, right? I want you to notice how all these things go together in a world where we talk a whole lot about justice and rights and mercy and tolerance and acceptance. And so much of these words have been completely rearranged and we look like we're pursuing right things, but all it's doing is creating chaos in our world because it's not the gospel. The first four of these Beatitudes deal directly with our relationship with God the Father. You see how that works on the inside. Blessed are you and you are poor in spirit. I'm not going to go back over them a, a, a dozen times, but you will notice that these are in direct relation with my internal relationship with God the Father, how I'm dealing with him relationally. Once I hunger and thirst after righteousness, the rest of the Beatitudes is a shift. If you go over to uh, the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, you will see that the first four of those ten deal with my relationship with God. The other six deal with 
how that looks lived out in relationship to other people, right? The first four deal with him. The other six deal with you. Beatitudes are the same way. The first four is me dealing with him. The rest of them is how does that look like now that I'm changed that I deal with you? The very first one, right out of the gate, now that you are the righteousness of Christ, you have received him, you have become him, the first thing is now we're working on the external look of mercy. Mercy comes from a heart that has felt its spiritual emptiness. Now, if you want to figure out mercy, that's, man, we don't talk a lot about mercy in our culture, but that's, that's the mistaken part of all of this. That's why the world talks about rights and we need to view others and, uh, uh, you know, in, in the, in the, you know, we talk about lots of freedoms and letting everybody, well, that's not your truth, that's my truth. And this is, you know, don't put your, your opinions on other people. And don't. Why? Because we're trying to be merciful to how other people feel. We try to be tolerant. We try to be accepting. We try to value other people where they are. That's why this always falls apart in confusion and division is because that's not how mercy can work. Mercy, you can't just jump in and all of a sudden be merciful. Mercy builds from emptiness to fullness. Now that I'm full with Christ, I can rightly judge how to be merciful, how to love people with justice and righteousness. Apart from these first four, I have no rules. I have no boundaries. I have no ability to be consistent. That's why you look around on the news and on social media and all you see is inconsistencies, which only leads to more and more offenses. It's because we've lost this, how to truly flourish. So mercy then, if you're taking notes, this would be a good place to start. Mercy is the fruit of a broken, sorrowful, humble heart that appreciates the kindness of forgiveness. Mercy comes from mercy. So up until now, when I am hungering and thirsting after righteousness, I will be filled, guess what I'm filled with? The righteousness of Christ. This is the most merciful thing that God could possibly give me is the identity of Jesus Christ. So because I have been shown mercy, what am I able to give away? Mercy. Because I have mercy, I can give mercy in this life. Otherwise, there's no way to do it. There's no vehicle. There's no mechanism to dispense mercy. That's just like love. We can say we love people, but John says, until you know the love of the Father, you can't possibly know how to love. Because God is love, and all love flows out of Him. You might have affection. You might have lust. You might have a desire for a relationship but you don't know how to unconditionally love anybody until you know the love of the Father. Same way with mercy. You don't know how to, how to give mercy until you are acutely aware of your spiritual deprecation. And you're filled up with the mercy of Jesus Christ. That's when you know how to give mercy, how to be fair, how to be just, how to be right. Only as it flows through you, not from you, through you. That's where the, I think the world gets it wrong is we're trying to let mercy flow from us, but we don't recognize our own need for it. That's why our judgment is so wrong. 
So mercy comes from mercy. And that's funny to me too, how Jesus says that blessed are the merciful for they will have mercy. So as I'm giving mercy in this life, one day I'm gonna stand before God in judgment and guess what he's gonna give me based on how merciful I am. He's gonna give me eternal mercy because I've been practicing here because of his great mercy in my life. So mercy is developed by us. I've already talked a little bit about this. Mercy is not something that you just sit back and develop. It's work. It's work. But you have to be activated in the lives of people around you. The scripture is very clear, and we're gonna break some of that down today. I hope that we have time to do all of that in one message. But it's like hope. You ever wonder why hope isn't a fruit of the Spirit? Because you can't develop hope apart from suffering and struggling. It's the only way to develop it. It's not something that can be developed in you. It has to be something that you develop because you choose hope in the midst of hopelessness. That's how you start flexing the hope muscle. It's the same way you flex the mercy muscle. When you're at a crossroad, you choose to be merciful and you develop mercy because you're focused constantly on your own need of mercy. You must, I wrote this down, it's a little bit silly, but you'll remember it, all right? You must choose it in order to use it because it's not going to choose itself. It doesn't choose itself. Mercy is not natural. Selfishness is natural. Judgmental is natural. Opinions are natural. Getting people to, uh, to agree with you in your opinions and point fingers at people who disagree with you, that's natural. Mercy isn't natural. You have to choose it. So the key to becoming a merciful person is to become a broken person. Who in here wants to recognize their brokenness? Who in here wants to live in the identity of I have nothing to offer God? Oh, we don't mind on the very front end of being a Christian, but it doesn't take very long to be a Christian to forget all about who we used to be. What Jesus is teaching is you can never forget your brokenness. It's what fuels your ministry. The Greek word for mercy in the New Testament means to help, to offer help, to give help to the wretched, to relieve the miserable. So I want to just take a few moments and let's identify what biblical mercy is. First, I think we have to identify the difference between mercy and grace. You've heard me talk about this before, many of you, but mercy actually withholds what the wretched deserves, right? So what does God withhold from us that we deserve? Well, quickly, hell, guilt, shame, separation from him, condemnation, eternal punishment. We could go on and on, but it's got, that's what I deserve because of my brokenness. But in God's great mercy, he withholds all, they, all those things from me. Amen? Grace is actually just the opposite of that. Grace gives what the wretched does not deserve. Let me explain. A relationship with him. Righteousness of Christ. Love. Acceptance. Closeness. But here's the interesting thing about how grace and mercy work together. A lot of people use them interchangeably, but they don't mean the same thing. For grace to be possible, mercy must exist first. 
Mercy is what God uses to look upon our condition and to feel compassion, to feel empathy, to be moved to action. So when God exercises his grace to us, he has already exercised his mercy. So mercy is very important in that regard. Mercy has to be there first. So God's mercy allows him to look upon us, the wretched, with compassion. So one affects us inwardly, which is mercy, and that inward effect allows for the outward effect, which is his grace. So what does outward, outward mercy look like? Well, it looks like two things in Scripture, compassion and forgiveness. So let's talk about mercy and compassion. When Jesus is in prayer and he's processing with the Father, he looks out over all of his people and it says, but he is moved with, anybody know? Compassion. He's moved with compassion. It was his being moved with compassion that flows out of his desire to be merciful. He looked with compassion. What does he do once he looks with compassion? He pursues the wretched. He sees them, but he moves beyond compassion to action. He actually does something about it. Jesus pursues the, the deaf, the dumb, the blind, the lame, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the drunks, the, the weak little children to do what? To offer his grace. But it all starts with his mercy. Jesus didn't just wait for a merciful opportunity. Jesus pursued opportunities by which he could show mercy. Jesus always moved in the realm of who needs mercy. And he was accused of that often. But I think that's maybe one of the things that we have moved away from is we pray for opportunities, but we're not necessarily pursuing opportunities. I think that if we as the people of God started, started asking and living in this, this is something we have to manifest, is to move, not according to our calendar or our schedules, but to always move where people need mercy. Think about where, where, what places that would take the people of God if instead of being repulsed by brokenness, we moved into it. Now, let me ask you this. Which one looks more like the Pharisees and which looks more like Jesus? To move into brokenness is the very heart of Jesus. To be repulsed by brokenness is the very heart of the Pharisees. Now we talk about mercy and forgiveness. You remember, <laughs> you remember the mercy of Joseph? You remember what jo Joseph is sold into slavery and uh, he spends year, decades in prison for something that he didn't do and Finally, he is the prime minister of all of Egypt in its heyday and his brothers out of desperation have to come before him to ask for help and they don't know it's him. And he is so filled with compassion, he has to leave the court and cry it out because of compassion, the Bible says. And then when he comes back in, what does he do? That compassion moves him to forgiveness. That's what mercy does. God's mercy moves us to compassion and it moves us to forgiveness. But here's what Joseph did. Joseph would have been justified to send them to his prison, but he forfeited his rights for the other person who needed mercy. Do you see how powerful mercy can be? In order to be merciful, you must 
forfeit your personal rights. And if there's ever been a day where we herald our rights, I have never heard the word rights as much as I have in the last three months. My rights, my rights, my rights, my rights. Your right is to be merciful because you have been shown mercy. That's your right. Because when you said yes to Jesus, you checked all your personal rights and you gave them to him. There was one man in the crowd that day when the woman was brought in, half-dressed and thrown in front of Jesus. Moses says, Stoner, what do you say? Jesus said, let he without, without sin cast the first stone. There was only one there that day that was without sin. And what did he say? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Merciful. It was well within the law It was well within public opinion. It was well within the righteousness of Christ to stone her. But what did Jesus choose? He chose the flourishing of the other person's point of view and showed mercy. Sometimes it helps to get a clear view of the opposite. So I'm gonna, with what time I have left, I'm gonna show us some opposites to get the four-sided view of, of mercy. This is in Matthew chapter nine. I'm gonna start reading in verse 10, read just a couple of verses. If you don't have time to turn there, just write it down and you can check it later. And as he sat at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, that would make sense. What do you do when you disagree with somebody? You try to get... People on your side. Instead of talking to Jesus about it, they're talking to everybody but Jesus about it. But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I love that. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. In other words, if you are full of your own righteousness, I've got nothing for you. But it's the tax collectors and sinners who are open to the gospel because they recognize the emptiness of this world. So here's what you should do. Go learn what this means. I prefer mercy over sacrifice. What is Jesus saying here? This goes back to Hosea chapter six, verse six, where Jesus is talking about the love of Israel and how it's like the dew of the morning. They have it for a little while, but it burns off pretty quick. That's the, that's the quote that Jesus is using. How does it fit? Well, it fits this way. Mercy is on the inside of a man, but everybody can pretend like they're sacrificing. You can do that externally without an internal change. Lots of people do that. We all are guilty of doing that. We make lots of sacrifices because it doesn't really cost us anything. What Jesus is saying is you can sacrifice, doesn't change your life. And you can tick the box and tell me how much you've done and what you've done and how much you've done. But unless there's a change in here, you're sick. You're sick and you're desperate for the gospel. You can be sacrificial without an inward action, but if you have that inward action, sacrifice will be produced in you. God cares about what's on the inside. Believe it or not, you can 
you can lie to everybody and pretend. You can even, you'll begin to believe your own lies and you'll be living self-deceit, but you can't fake out God. Jesus just sees people differently. When Jesus sees a sinner, he doesn't see someone he's got to buck up against. When Jesus sees a sinner, he sees someone that's sick. When the Pharisees see a sinner, they see someone that might affect their external reputations because they're ceremonially unclean. Jesus isn't worried about ceremony. Jesus is worried about eternity. And what greater place to start than with the least of these, the darkest of these, the deepest, vilest sinners. They live by rules and checklists. Jesus lived by his heart. Look at another example. This is in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. These are herbs. Listen, these, these Pharisees were so hypocritical that they would come to the synagogue and they were tithing their herbs. Jesus said, you... Now listen, we value tithing. Jesus said, you've done a great external work there. You know, you can give money and not be changed in your heart. That's why the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver, not just a giver, but someone whose emotions have been affected by his giving, right? You have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What did he say? Justice, mercy, and righteousness. These are the things that the law exists for. You've completely negated the law, which, by the way, we're not talking about the Ten Commandments or all of the laws. Jesus sums all that up in the New Testament and says the law really is love the Lord with everything in you and love your neighbor the same way. That's, that's the law. So in relationship to God, that's the law, to love him. In relationship to one another, it's to love you the way I love God, the way God loves through me. So Jesus says, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. You don't love God and you don't love people and your relationship to God has been drilled down and boiled down into how much deal you bring to the altar. And I wonder how many of us are guilty of this. Checking our boxes of religiosity, He said, you blind guides, straining at a gnat, swallowing a camel. What a great metaphor. So the opposite of mercy is, as Jesus says, trivial religion. The externals of faith. It's the greatest enemy to mercy. Blessed are the merciful. So if you want to be blessed in this life and in the one to come, you have to, be, you have to make war with whatever you're finding satisfaction in with small tokens of faith. And you gotta, we have to learn how to move from the things we do to who we are. 
and how that relates to the world around us in justice and mercy and righteousness. According to Jesus, according to Jesus, mercy is a huge part of the makeup of a Christian. When Jesus talks about the weightiest parts of our faith, he doesn't talk about Bible study, church attendance. He talks about showing mercy to people that are in relationship with you. You see that? This is the weightier parts of our faith. But remember, it flows out of the personal brokenness repentance, humility, righteousness. It takes the internal transformation and creates the external transformation. Jesus would say, if you wanna know for sure if you're truly a Christian, judge it by your mercy, not your rights. Judge it by your mercy, not your freedoms. Judge it by your mercy, not how much of the Bible you've read or how much money you've given. The weightier matters of the law. Another good illustration of this is the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. I'm not going to read all of it, or I'm going to try not to read all of it, but I want you to behold a teacher, a lawyer stood up, put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What he's asking is, how can I find mercy on the day of judgment? And he said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, you've answered this right. Do it and you'll live. He said, I have done it. But I don't know who my neighbor is. Who's my neighbor? I love this question because it really reveals the heart. Who's my neighbor? Because I don't want to waste any mercy. I don't want to be merciful to people I don't have to be. So you tell me which box I need to be merciful to because I don't want to be merciful just to anybody. I want credit for it, right? That shows really the heart. So Jesus says that the person who will receive the mercy of eternal life are those who loved God with everything. And the proof of that love is that they love their neighbors with everything. In, in other words, blessed are those who are merciful now to their neighbor for they will receive mercy of eternal life in the future. Well, then Jesus goes on in verse 30 through 37 to tell about the the story of the Samaritan. Jesus makes this up on the spot, but his story is perfect because he tells about a, a Jewish man who's leaving Jerusalem and he's heading to, uh, to Jericho and he is robbed. And he's beaten and he's thrown into the ditch and a priest walks by and is repulsed. And he goes to the other side of the street and walks on. Next, there's a Levite that walks by and he's repulsed. Now, if you want to know who these people would be, he's talking about a pastor and the music leader of the synagogue. The religious ones. The ones who have all the answers. The ones who have all the rules. I don't have time to deal with this. You know how important I am? I can't touch that. I've got to go touch that. But then there was a Samaritan, which, by the way, was the enemy, the sworn enemy of the Jews. What does he do? Picks him out of the ditch. He binds his wounds, puts him on his own animal, takes him to the inn, pays not only for a day, but as many days as it takes to bring this man whole, complete. Jesus said, now, 
lawyer. Who is this man's neighbor? What is the name? He gets it. The lawyer gets it. He says, the one who showed him mercy. Not the one that was headed to church. Not the one who knew all the worship songs. Not the one who had given all the money and forfeited all their life for their religiosity. Who's the neighbor? The merciful one. The merciful one. Here's what Jesus said. Mercy is an inner attitude. Grace is when it is expressed. Mercy looks like compassion and forgiveness. So Jesus doesn't say, go and feel likewise to the lawyer. What does Jesus say? Go and do likewise. Do mercy. You remember that from the book of Amos chapter four? What do I require of you, O Israel, but to do mercy? So mercy sees distress. It first responds internally. Then it responds externally, even to our enemies. The proof of our faith isn't spiritual disciplines. It's the power to see brokenness, to feel pity, to perform relief toward an enemy. That's the proof. That's the proof of your faith. Well, when can we, you know, the Bible also talks about justice. So am I supposed to be merciful or am I supposed to be just? Because those things don't work together. Except that he doesn't tell us here to be 100% accurate with mercy. He tells us that out of our brokenness, we are able to be merciful as a characterization. He never tells us to be justice. There's a lot of people who misread that. That's, that's a wrong translation. We are not called to be justice. We're called to be merciful. Mercy then overrides our inability to tell the difference between the two. So when your kids act up, do you say, man, you need a spanking, but I'm gonna be merciful. Or does a judge say, I cannot believe that this is the kind of person you are, but the Bible tells me to be merciful, so you're free again. No, but learning, getting as close to Christ as we can was Ephesians chapter two, but God being rich in mercy gives us that mercy. And now we, as close to Christ as we can get, know how to give mercy or justice, which, which is needed in this moment. Is it mercy or justice? But we don't act on our own accord. We say, what's good for the glory of God? Does this person need justice right now or does this person need mercy? Where will they see more of Jesus? I think that's the problem with our culture at being able to point out the real remedy when people are in opposition to each other, they're taking offense to each other and we try to be merciful, but it's not really mercy. Or we try to be just and hold on to our rights or what is right, but we're, but we're not doing it through the spirit that's been cultivated from our own brokenness. How many of us have ever in a moment of a heated debate thought, you know what, I'm being a jerk right now because I've been, I've been really stupid before. 
I've said some things that I've read. How many of you have been able to, when someone you know has made some violation and you're quick to judgment, don't think back and say, you know what, I don't know who I am because I've done that same thing. I need to be a little bit more tender. I need to be a little bit more understanding. If we were constantly aware of the mercy God gave us, we'd be a whole lot quicker to think mercy first and then to act because it's not just a feeling, it's an action where we're pursuing opportunities to give away what we've been given. And yes, in this life, you will experience mercy. I'm telling you, if you find a merciful person who is always looking for opportunities to be merciful to people when they need mercy, guess what the world will give them? Mercy. You know what? You messed up, but you've been so merciful to everybody. That's not the full picture, though. The full picture is, is when you've responded to the mercy of God and you give the mercy of God away, one day when you stand before God, he will give you his eternal mercy. Everything you get on that day of judgment will not be because you've earned it. If you get it because you earned it, it's not a gift. It's a wage but the wages of sin is death. So on the day of judgment, because of the emptying of yourself and the being filled with the righteousness of Christ, whenever God gives you his eternal sentence, it'll be because of his great mercy. We live, we live, we walk, we breathe because of the mercy of God. It's the only reason anything good ever happens. Now, I want to close with a quick illustration of Balaam, the terrible prophet. Wonderful opportunities. And he was hired by Israel's enemies to curse Israel. But every time he went to curse Israel, his prophecy turned into a blessing. I love it. I wish my sermons would do that. Uh, Every time that he goes to speak something, God changes it and it ends up being a blessing. This happens several times. But one day he is overlooking Israel and he's about to try to curse them and he sees them flourishing. And he says, oh, that I may die the death of the righteous. If I could be counted among their number. He is seeing how God has caused them to flourish. And here he is an outsider saying, I want to be able to die with their joy, with their hope. And that's wonderful. But Balaam, sadly, a little over 10 chapters later, trying to curse Israel again, he dies on the battlefield with a sword, miserable death, counted outside of Israel. There's an old Puritan writer who said this about Balaam. Oh, he wanted to die the death of the righteous. The sad thing, he didn't want to live the life of the righteous. And I think that there are so many of us who want the blessings that come with Christianity. We just don't want to do the work. We don't want to cultivate the eyes. We don't want to cultivate the heart. We don't want to cultivate the hand. It's so much easier to demand rights and point our fingers than it is to remember where we've come from and to be soft and gentle and reveal Christ in a world of brokenness. The very first thing that our emptiness is filled back up with in Christ is mercy. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, 
This is what he says. It wasn't toward himself. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, be merciful to them. Not to me. Be merciful through me to them. While he is dying for their sins, let's compare ourselves to that mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Let's pray. Lord, in a world that hardly recognizes mercy, we see a lot of kindness, artificial. We see a lot of acceptance. It's, it's temporary. We, we hear a lot about tolerance. And it only goes as far as we personally believe. So, Lord, I pray that your church, your people, the people who are cultivating the very heart of the, the mercy giver, who is rich in mercy, I pray that as we reveal the mercy that's been shown to us, that it will teach the world a mercy that it's not seen. As we have opportunities to talk, as we have opportunities to share, as we look for opportunities to be mercy givers, I pray that you would be glorified and honored. But Lord, help us to repent of whatever it is that we've depended upon. And of course, the word of God is important. And of course, church attendance is important. And of course, giving is important. But not as external obligations, but as it flows out of our mercy. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of who we have been so that we can be softened to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before we go, I'd like for us to maybe stay seated for just a moment and just ask the Lord to search our hearts, to try us, and to see if there be roots of bitterness that needs to be removed. And I, I believe that the Lord will reveal those roots of bitterness where we might be able to show mercy. Some of you may be in relationships that are growing bitter. You may be in having to work with people and you may, you may have you know, issues in your family or in your relationships that you're growing hard-hearted toward. Well, I would encourage us today, let's, let's, let's seek the mercy of God for ourselves. Remember that He has shown us mercy that we may be able to give it away. So spend just a moment and ask the Lord to search your heart and to see if there's any root of bitterness there. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.